Uh, hello, for those who don't know me, I'm Calypso Nicolaitis. I'm professor here at Oxford in international relations. And I'm here really uh, acting instead of Max Watson, director of the program on financial market here uh, at the European Centre, but also associated with DPIR. And indeed, we really are grateful and welcome you today because as we all know, we're not quite in term yet, but it's really a testimony to our speakers' uh, great reputation and, and attraction power, as it were, that, that you're here outside term. And indeed, we're really very, very grateful, Ashok, for your coming here and sharing your ideas with us. I think Ashok Modi doesn't need m much introduction, but let me just say, first of all, on a personal level, that I've had the pleasure of discussing some of these issues with him uh, when I was myself in New York, and he being a professor, visiting professor at Princeton Woodrow Wilson School. Um, we talked then, and I know for a fact, my little finger tells me, I don't know if you say this in English, but in French, my little <laughs> finger tells me that his students love him, faculty love him there, he is a star at Princeton. And indeed, he came to Princeton from a very illustrious career um, at the World Bank and the IMF, uh, um, working on the Global Finance Report for several years at the World Bank, and then as Deputy Director uh, in the IMF on re European and Research Departments, working with and closely with several countries, including Germany, Switzerland, and above all, Ireland. And I understand that your biggest link with Max Watson is definitely <laughs> your joint involvement with Ireland, for better or worse, well, no, 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 I'm just joking. So, we won't go there. So, there is no question that Ashok Modi comes to us, you know, with an enormous amount of experience, but he's also one of those, you know, uh, person who's not just a technocrat, who's not just, you know, who really, really bridges the two worlds between academia and the Bretton Woods system. And in doing so, I think he's been very, very creative in his uh, career. And we, the last mark of this creativity uh, and wishing to think outside the box is a paper that is really starting to do the rounds in Europe today, and that's what he's going to present, a Schumann compact for the Eurozone area. Uh, this paper, and he'll, of course, tell us more about the circumstances, but he's been writing it uh, at Bruegel in Brussels, and we know that Bruegel is a very influential think tank. As, we, as he and I were just talking about, not everybody in Bruegel agrees with the paper, which is what makes it exciting. But he's now presenting the ideas in this paper around Europe. He was just mm -hmm. in London, he's going back to the continent, and so it's a great privilege because we're kind of the first academic testing ground, as it were, in Europe for the paper. And the paper is something, you know, Max and I, you know, very much uh, full feel we are in uh, agreement with. Uh, it's very much a paper, as you will hear, which seeks, and I quote, <coughs> seeks to make decentralization more robu robust that rather than wish it away, or rather argues that this is what the EU should do when, coming, when it comes to Euro governance that more decentralization is not the solution. And now Ashok is going to tell us why that's the case and okay. what to do instead. Okay. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much. I should just start with... Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to mention that our dear colleague, David Vines, is going to be your discussant. Th no you. need to introduce that, you, David. <laughs> 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 sorry. That's a bit... Uh, 
unfair. I mean, given the very sort of extravagant introduction you gave of me, you needed to have at least balanced it a little bit. Uh, so I, I will just start with a, a an Oxford anecdote. I, I, I don't know how many of you remember Paul Streeton, who used to be here. Uh, he was one of the great uh, development economists of his generation, somebody I was fortunate to know in an earlier period. And he said to me once that if when he attends a conference, if he meets one old friend and makes one new friend, he considers it a success. So by that standard, uh, this has already been a great success. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm truly delighted to be here. So let me just start, you know, I, I didn't make a presentation because I knew that this is a relatively small group and it's more in the nature of a conversation. So the, the presumption in this paper is that the architecture of Europe matters, both economically and politically. And it matters for a number of reasons, but it matters importantly to an economist because it is my view, and I'm going to stipulate this, and if you wish to discuss it in the discussion period, that Europe is a continent which has lost economic vitality and that therefore its long-term growth prospects are, are modest and certainly more modest than a lot of the current optimism as David Vines was just saying to me uh, suggest and that therefore in a setting where economic growth is going to be relatively constrained. If you have the wrong architecture, then you run the risk of greater pitfalls, great, greater susceptibility to shocks, and therefore greater vulnerability in terms of even deeper uh, growth problems. Uh, and so, so the elixir of growth washes away a lot of, of institutional ills. But, but when you don't have that elixir, and I'm, I'm stipulating that Europe does not have that elixir, perhaps maybe there'll be some bounce back in 2014. But a lot of the growth forecasts, especially in my meetings in London, are essentially based on what people are telling each other. That is, everyone says that growth is going to be good because uh, uh, Calypso says it's good and David Vine says good, good, and so therefore it becomes good. And to some extent, that is good policy and it, it has real effects, but it does not generate long-term growth. So that's, that's the premise of the paper. The, the content of the paper then has the following structure. So... A lot of people agree with the first point. There are some who don't, but a lot of people agree that long-term growth is going to be less robust than we think. And then there are three points of view. One is what we really need is now a truly integrated uh, Eurozone with a fiscal with a, with a fiscal system that, that bridges the nations, with a banking union, fiscal union, banking union, uh, 
and that's where we need to go and we must push make a policy effort to push in that direction and then when they recognize that that push has not paid dividends the fallback position is that's fine Europe always muddles through that this is a muddling through process but fundamentally we subscribe to a, a thesis that I call the falling forward thesis and the falling forward thesis is yes Europe stumbles but every time it falls it picks itself up and moves forward and that this is an inevitable process and it will occur so there are those who say we must push forward those who say that we must push forward but recognize that that pushing forward is not working saying we are muddling through based on the falling forward thesis and then there is a third group of people who say you know if this is not going to work we need to break up the euro because unless the Germans are willing to put a lot of money on the table just why don't we just forget about it and break up the euro so those are the three that's my understanding of the three views of the future architecture of Europe one that moves rapidly into a real union a United States of Europe another that muddles through to that vision in some longer time span and the third says you know this was all a mistake let's just break it up and my claim my proposition in this paper is that the first vision of a fiscal union I don't even go into the economics of a fiscal union and a banking union I, I, I'm willing to stipulate that perhaps if that was a realistic possibility it has good economic properties I'm not sure of that but I don't waste time thinking about it because it is so unrealistic that it's not time to think about it when, when I did a press conference on this paper kindly organized by Bruegel uh, a, 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 a journalist from The Economist asked me but the IMF has just put out a paper on the fiscal union and shouldn't we be discussing it and I said for 10 years during the period that the IMF that the uh, Europe, uh, Eurozone existed the article 4 reports the annual article 4 reports never had the phrase fiscal union at a time when Europe was quiet, when these institutions should have been built, the SGP was the the the, the was extolled as the basically fundamentally correct structure uh, to 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 guide Europe. Today, when we know that it's not going to happen, there are all these wonderfully crafted, elegantly stated proposals. So he asked me, so is the IMF drinking Kool-Aid? And, you know, it, it was on the record, and I didn't say it was, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it seems very much like, you know, it's like sort of uh, dealing with something that to, to 
keep themselves busy rather than to do something that is more more productive in a in a sense that has some degree of policy realism so where do i come out vis-a-vis the folks who say therefore let's break up the euro my I fall back on the Barry Eichen Green paper, which says that breaking up the euro, the euro was a mistake, it should never have happened, but now it's here, and breaking it up is extraordinarily costly. And I take that as a statement that is valid. There are those, one of your colleagues, Kevin O'Rourke, even though another of uh, Barry's protégés like I am uh, is inclined sometimes to contest that view. I think that breaking up the euro at this point is a bad idea. I think that if the euro has to eventually break up, that the, the, the structure that my paper is proposing, which is a more decentralized structure, will be a, a, a better launching pad for the breakup of the euro. Uh, and that therefore, even to break up the euro, you want to first do a, a degree of decentralization that reduces the interconnections that are so embedded in the system. So I have, no, I have no sort of claim or proposition on the breakup of the euro. I'm quite happy that now that it is here, let's take that as data and let's think, ourselves, think about what to, what to do next. So in that context then, the first proposition of the paper is that the euro was a false promise. It was a false promise not just in the, in, the, in the economics of it, which was very well known, although in retrospect not well known enough, that there, was, there, there wasn't a, a clearer realization, although Alan Walters, there is this so-called Walters critique, which was not part of the mainstream critique of uh, the euro. Most of that came from the so-called uh, common currency area ideas. But, but Alan Walter said something important. And that it, has, it, has, it, has a, it has many implications, which is that when you have a fixed exchange rate regime, there is a tendency in that regime for banks to to expect or to, to discount risk because they, they presume that there is a degree of assuredness in the returns and that therefore if I'm lending to Ireland or Spain, the risk that their exchange rate might depreciate if they do poorly because it's eliminated, 
then my risks are also lower. And so it is a very well-established, stylized fact of emerging market crisis that fixed exchange rate regimes and large capital inflows generate big bubbles and big crashes. But the irony is that this is not just an emerging market phenomenon. The ERM was an exact replica or ERM crisis of 92 was an exact replica of these emerging market stylized facts. And and Europe had just gone through a cri- a preview of the eurozone crisis. And instead of taking that crisis and saying, you know what, let's step back and rethink about it, they in effect doubled the bets. They, what they did was they say, the reason we ERM did not work was that we had not tied our hands tightly enough. And that if only we tied our hands even tighter, we'd make it so hard for ourselves to go back on this animal that people will think it's all right and it will work. Except that what they didn't realize is that if you tie something hard to a mast, then something else has to give. And so the speculation this time was not on exchange rate, but it was on sovereign debt. And so it just moves from, from exchange rate to sovereign debt. And so sovereign debt is, was intended in the original structure to be the vent. And hence the no bailout clause was not just a political convenience, it was an economic necessity. In its, in its conception, then, the eurozone was correctly designed. If I, if I, if I have a fixed exchange rate, then I should allow default on sovereign debt. So I come back to that theme in a minute, but I just leave, I, I, I say this to you because it also underlines in my mind an unwillingness to learn from Europe's own experiences. So looking forward then, the structure that I'm trying to suggest Europe needs to think more carefully about what properties should it have? And the, the three properties I'm just about to list are not mutually exclusive, as you will see, but they are sufficiently different that they complement each other even though they overlap. The first is it must be robust, that when there are shocks, you don't pull the system down. The second is there must be a learning process. There must be a way in which there is a true moving forward where you don't just double the bets every time you make a mistake. And the third is that it must have political legitimacy. And the political legitimacy reinforces the robustness and the learning process and vice versa. So with that in mind, the the next claim of the paper is that there was never a real falling forward possibility within the context of the euro. That whatever falling forward had to occur up until the point of Maastricht 
was an easy integration process where there were very few conflicts of interest. There was agricultural policy about which I know very little, but the trade liberalization and stuff, there wasn't a lot of uh, disagreement. Wherever there was disagreement, it was always the case that national in interest took precedence. Even in the ERM, Germany always acted in its self-interest whenever there was a divergence with ERM policy. So the fact that today Germany is acting in its self-interest should not be a surprise to anybody. It, it, it is in the nature of Germ the Germans to act in their self-interest at this point. This is not a, 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 a claim to them being virtuous or otherwise. That's what they do. So, so does France. And indeed, there is a, a question of, of why the euro even arose in the first place. And one of the claims is when American economists looked at the euro and they saw this ghastly structure, they said to themselves that the only reason the Europeans want to do the euro is that it's a political project. And nobody, when, when I started writing this paper, I asked myself, what exactly was this political project? What, what does it mean? What does the phrase political project mean? <coughs> Other than that it was bad economics. <laughs> the, and, and the only sensible way in which it is a political project is that if built into the project was a plausible learning process of institutional development that would lead to a United States of Europe. And the argument of the paper is that was never the intent of anybody in Europe who was designing the euro. That if you look, start with the Werner Report of 1970, which is the first, in my view, official document which spells out the euro. It clearly said, monetary union, no fiscal union. Remember Peter Kennan had just written his important paper talking about a transfer union being an essential part of a monetary union. I could not find a reference to Peter Kennan in the Werner report or for that matter in the Delors report that came later. There is no, there is, it, isn't even, it isn't even acknowledged as a possibility. It, it, it was never, never, a, it was never on the minds of Europeans to create a, a, a monetary union that had a fiscal union as part of it. And as time went by, the Delors report sim said something similar. And by 1992, even the great Peter Kennan had sort of abandoned his own fiscal union mantra and had begun to subscribe and to start refining the SGP. Yeah. And so by the time we came to the euro, the, in 1999, this was all gone. There was no, there was no discussion. There was, there was never any intent. There was never any process by which this would happen. So then the only other possibility left of falling forward is that the designers of the euro knew and expected that this structure was so fragile that one day it would have a crisis. 
and that when the crisis occurred, the necessary will to complete the union would, would exist. Now, however implausible such a, a, a conception is, we have now gone through a crisis and we've seen exactly what happened. That in a crisis, when does a crisis work? A crisis works, so the, in America they use the phrase, never waste a good crisis. And you see in emerging market contexts that sometimes a crisis does in fact change the dynamic. But for the crisis to change a dynamic, there has to be one party that's willing to take losses. To the crisis arises because interests differ, diverge. And when the crisis occurs, somebody has to say, you know, it's okay for me to make my interest subsidiary in the greater interest in the greater good. Either that or that party whose interests are submerged is powerless and therefore has to be in any, is, it can be steamrollered. So in this case, Germany was not going to be steamrollered and Germany was not a hegemon of a stature that was willing and able either economically or politically to subsume its interests for a greater Europe. So the crisis didn't work. So given this history then and, and, and eliminating for a few minutes a discussion of whether we should or should not have the euro. So, so now we have two parties. We have, we have the muddling through and we have the, 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 the breakup, the voices for the breakup are coming essentially from the periphery. It's sort of the periphery's threat that if, if you guys don't do the right thing by us, then we, we don't want to be part of you. It's an empty threat. And it's completely meaningless because they're not, they're not going away anywhere. They, they have become so dependent on the driblets of transfers that are coming from the north that they, they have become sort of addicted to those transfers at this point and therefore they're not going away anywhere. So the idea of the Schumann Compact, and I'm going to stop in about five or six minutes uh, well, because of... You need, you need to tell us the content of the Schumann Yeah, Compact. so the, the, the content I'm going to tell you, yeah. The, the content is essentially the idea that you do not need a complete fiscal union if you allow for a credible no bailout mechanism. Okay? It's not ideal, perhaps, but if, the, if there is a vent for taking the losses some other place, 
and that other one some other place can only be in the private creditors to either the banking system or to <coughs> the sovereign then the need to deal with the so called asymmetric shocks is at least partially dealt with at the national level so the delors report asks the following question they say perhaps the market should be the disciplining force on sovereigns but then quickly waves its hands and says you know but markets are sometimes irrational and so we need centralized supervision but centralized supervision has been essentially at best irrelevant and for the most part dysfunctional this is not something that i'm saying that is new it is well documented <clears throat> the entire process of the sgp has created in a strong incentive for game playing amongst member states as somebody who has been on the official side <clears throat> i have seen these games either in manipulating the deficit numbers or in manipulating the growth numbers to deliver a 3% number over some horizon that is mutually acceptable nobody believes those numbers but the number 3% had become such a dominant focal point of discourse in europe that pretending that 3% would be achieved was more of an achievement than whether it would in fact be achieved or not and so it became it became a game and today we have substituted that <coughs> with something that we call two pack and six pack and so on which has which again is something i've not bothered to follow because it is so horrendously complex and it's again an instance of doubling the bets you had a system the sgp which was relatively transparent it was a stupid system but it was transparent you knew what to do it was 3% now they say now they say we will monitor something called the structural deficit and the structural deficit as those of you who have who have tried to estimate structural deficits know that you can make up any number you want and the numbers and, and change as a matter of fact that's what they've done recently and in, in the structural deficits they've estimated they wildly silly yeah and and <laughs> and the numbers change from one year to another so we know and this is i'm not saying anything that is not publicly known the irish structural deficits were small before the crisis and then after the crisis we look back and say oops they were huge so it doesn't it doesn't, it has these numbers have no meaning and on top of it a committee of national governments uh, national government representatives will make the decision whether it is a large or small deficit so it's it's a game they are playing for reasons that are internally aesthetic but have no economic or real substantive com- uh, uh, content so the view is the Barry Eichen Green and and Jurgen von Hagen had a paper in 1992 saying this is not just a a this is not just a costless game because if you create such a system you create a presumption that 
somebody is minding the shop and that therefore sovereigns are going to have some protection that you create a moral obligation that I've been monitoring these guys and if they mess up then I stand I st I have some skin in the game and that skin in the game creates the presumption that they will be bailed out then uh, an expectation that is fulfilled later by this uh, by the whole process so it becomes self-fulfilling so it's not innocuous that you create these centralized systems so my view is you don't need it you don't need it in the good times and maybe to the extent it's dysfunctional let's sort of back off from it instead then the question is how do you create so the big question then everybody asks me and I'm not I'm not going to pretend I have an, a good answer to this is yeah but you know you are the one drinking Kool-Aid because you will never have a credible sovereign bailout that when it comes to the crunch sovereigns will always be bailed out and therefore the absence of a credible commitment to bail out sovereigns means that we don't have any choice. Now I'm not clear, so I, I have two reactions to that. So I say, okay, if you don't have any option, then what is the alternative? The alternative has to be to create huge moral hazard in the system, which is exactly what is happening now. Some of the optimism in my mind ref is directly reflected, is a, is a direct reflection of the fact that official creditors in the euro system have become junior to private creditors. The signal to private creditors is, don't worry, you'll be paid. If the debt cannot be repaid, we'll take the hit. That's the message and that's the action. It, this is no longer now, in the, in the, in the pre-crisis days, there was a, an uneasy sense, there was, there was a general <coughs> sense that bailout, no bailout would not be implemented. We've gone through the crisis and we now know that no bailout will not be implemented. And if you don't have a credible sovereign debt mechanism, that's what's going to be the norm. And yes, it will create optimism and it may create growth, but we went through 10 years of growth in, in the Eurozone and when the crisis hit, we were blindsided. And it, Maybe this time is different, but I, I, this is where the robustness argument comes in. You don't want a system <coughs> where you can have another euro crisis of the kind we've just gone through. And so you want to protect yourself from it, however good the, the immediate future looks. So no a vastly reduced centralized surveillance, perhaps something like a think tank, like a fiscal council, <clears throat> but not somebody who is monitoring and reporting with endless reports and back and forth to Brussels. Uh, a, a, a sovereign debt mechanism, and my proposal for that and Professor Wines, oddly enough, was also a discussion on an earlier paper in which I gave my view of how to create credibility 
<clears throat> and I can discuss more about it, but I, I, I'll say briefly what my proposal is that every time a sovereign issues a bond, <clears throat> the contract stipulates that there will be default in certain states of the world. That if X, Y, Z transpires in terms of debt levels or price levels, and we can talk about what, tr what triggers it, but there should be no option but to negotiate to restructure the debt and that the restructuring then gets priced into the debt issuance so the first reaction to that is oh but that's going to raise the the cost of issuing debt and i say duh that's that's the intent the, the, your, your, you have a subsidy in that debt which is not being priced because there is a presumption of bailout and you want to make that subsidy explicit by pricing it because there is a huge externality cost over here which is when one sovereign begins to teeter, others begin to look weak and so there is a clear public policy uh, basis over here for creating a presumption that under in certain states of the world there is a default. So I call these sovereign cocos in the spirit of bank cocos, which is that they have a contingent convertibility into a different form and a different terms, easier terms of repayment. That's a whole another paper and again, depending on the interest, I'm happy to talk about. So the fiscal union then has a fiscal, a loose fiscal compact agreeing to general norms of good behavior, but then letting countries do whatever they want within that, disciplined by a sovereign debt contract, a compact, which says we will all issue sovereign debt with these cocos. And then the discipline is exercised by the market. On the banking union, the, the, the paper was written a few months before the most recent developments. And I'm pleased as an author to conclude that pretty much what this paper predicted has happened. Not as somebody who cares about Europe, but certainly uh, as, as somebody who, who, who was thinking about these issues that there would be an intergovernmental compact, intergovernmental agreement, because that's the only thing the Europeans can agree on, that there will be no centralized pool of funding, that there will be an enormously complex governance system to ensure that all parties in the system are protecting themselves against all kinds of eventualities, a complexity that essentially renders it ineffective, useless, and perhaps worse than that. And that therefore, we are back to square one. And square one is that we have national resolution legislation, and we need to start closing banks down. So the entire premise of the banking union discussion is that something will happen in 2012, something will happen in 2013, then in 2014 XYZ will happen, and by 2016 XYZ will happen. In the meantime, the banks are still bleeding. Uh, 
and the system we the europe eurozone recovery has already been weaker than the japanese recovery in the so called japanese last decade and today we as we stand the european financial system is weaker than the japanese financial system was at this point in its recovery and we know and we know that that weakness of the japanese financial system constrained it for several years beyond that so we are already baking in with our delays and procrastination a growth process that even if even if there was greater vitality in the system we are we are we are almost condemning europe to a growth which is either weak and fragile uh, weak or fragile or more likely weak and fragile so the hard thing has to be done which is banks have to be closed lots of banks have to be closed so then the question is yeah but who's going to pay for the closing and the answer is everything in the end seems to center around this vexatious question of who's going to pay for it and the answer is that some people took bets and those bets went bad and we need to share the losses <clears throat> nobody has to pay for it in some sense the creditors of the banks have to take losses and that's in my mind eventually some form of massive debt equity swap has to occur that people who made these bets have to say <clears throat> be told you know guys we all got into this together we made bad bets and you have you claim that i owe you 100 euros why don't we do the reasonable thing you take a piece of paper which says that in 10 years if i do well you get your you get it back if i don't you make a loss and i make a loss and so we have to renegotiate those contracts i'm not saying it's easy i'm not saying it's pleasant i'm not saying it it is it it will not create its own distortions but that is where we are we 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 are in the situation and i am not able to see unless the elixir of growth works in a way that i do not anticipate remembering that this was also the mantra in the japanese process that every time there was this growth that was going to rescue things if growth emerges then none of this is relevant then none of this is relevant at least till the next crisis comes but if growth does not emerge then some form of loss recognition through debt equity swaps has to occur there is a continued ambivalence on debt restructuring even in the banking sector despite brave talk the directives have a million exceptions about how risks of contagion might do this that and the other and on sovereign debt we we have essentially reestablished the claim that sovereign debt is risk free i'm stating it a little more strongly than the european authorities will will feel is fair to them but in effect that is the de facto principle around which europe is again operating today so let me conclude by saying that 
as somebody who is at once an outsider to Europe, but who is also has this enormous respect for the European project as an instrument of of high ideals and peace and wishing that it be successful in those dimensions in which it has truly shown itself to be distinguished. That the pursuit of this ill-fated Euro project is not only a cause that is undermining the economics of Europe, but at a time when we need more of certain valuable dimensions of Europe, it is beginning to potentially erode even those gains. And today, and I'm not a political scientist, so I'm, I'm now trespassing a little bit into territory that I should not. The we mainstream have a monopoly on. <laughs> the mainstream parties have decided to vacate this area of discourse and are allowing fringe parties to be more influential than they deserve to be. And if we do not create a functional decentralization, one where the sense of dependency and humiliation that is currently characteristic of the dialogue in Europe is eliminated, then the likelihood that the fringe parties will gain greater ground and influence the nature of the eventual outcomes in a way that we will all ultimately agree is a loss for Europe that probability continues to grow. And so the wiser counsel at this point would be to take a deep breath and say, yes, maybe there is some greater vision of a United States of Europe at some point, but this is not the point. And that it's good to take a step back, use a more decentralized structure as a resting stop today let there be a cleansing of the losses that have been accumulated through this process. And perhaps if Europe begins to re-emerge as a more vital economic region and where the political divisions become less acute, there may come another day when the march to the United States of Europe continues. I'm not therefore saying that that should be the outcome or that is even the preferred outcome. But what I'm saying is that for those who see that as an important goal for Europe, even to them I say that's the current unthinking drive to that system is proving ultimately harmful to your own project. Okay. So let me stop. 
Ashok, thank you so much for, I think, this very, very clear exposition. And I I can't insist enough for everyone to, you know, read the paper because they can hear how insightful and interesting and provocative it is. But, of course, you've had to skip important uh, elements of it, even historically. And, for instance, your analogy with the pre-war U.S. Yeah. system, you didn't say anything yeah. about that. So Fair. there's a whole load of issues which we might push you on in the Q&A, mm -hmm. but also that everyone will find in the paper, which is on the web, and I really encourage everyone to do so. But, uh, and indeed, I, including on the politics of all this, because uh, your common sense and insight uh, is certainly greater than though that of many political scientists that I do know. Now, it, it's very much appropriate that David would be your discussant indeed, not only because he's been a, a very, very strong pillar of PEFM <laughs> and um, accompanying it from the beginning and working with Max and all of us, uh, and of course, professor here in economics and macroeconomics, but also because recently he uh, has become the director of ethics and economics at the um, James Martin School Institute for New Economic Ideas. And that's also a, an interesting dimension to what we do in Oxford. I think to convey your ideas there will also be interested. And perhaps most importantly, because David has uh, written a recent book, which again, I think we can advise everyone to read their leaderless economy, why the world economic system fell apart and how to fix it with, with uh, Peter Temin. And I think there's no better recommendation than Ashok's, who was, I heard earlier say that it was one of the best reading on his reading list for the students because it was so engagingly written yeah. and all of that. So, um, so on recommending your book, David, and turning back to you, I'm sure you will. It's lots about this problem. <laughs> Thanks so much for a really interesting paper, Ashok. Um, and can I recommend to all of you that you read it uh, to back up what you've just heard? And, and what you've just heard has been a really, uh, I'll use your words, a very powerful political economy talk. Uh, quite deliberately uh, that rather than a detailed technical economics talk. Uh, and you phrased your thing very well at the beginning by saying the three possible options, rapid fiscal union, muddling through, or breakup. You ruled out the first. Um, let me concede that today. You, I'll come back at the end and say that I keep on wishing that there was a way to make it work, and we'll talk about that at the end. But let's agree, rule out the first, no rapid fiscal union. Let's agree that muddling through is a mess and will probably lead to crisis. And this, so we're left with breakup. So it's just crisis as a result of muddling through or breakup, unless we invent something else. And you very persuasively argue the need for a new way. But I think today, and even in your paper, we're still at the point of reductio ad absurdum, where you say, there has to be something else. Here it is, voila. Uh, so I think there needs to be some economics now yeah. uh, to supporting that political economy. And I'm, I'm afraid to say I don't think it would work. So this reductio ad absurdum pushes me back to the problem. Uh, 
you, I have to ask you to listen to me for a minute. That's a big claim. So I'll, I have to try and explain why I say that. Um, this is the macroeconomic problem caused by the link. And, and, uh, and let me do this as, as uh, quickly but as carefully as I can. Why? Because I made a, a strong claim. There's a macroeconomic problem caused by the linking of separate countries with separate labour markets within one monetary system. Now, there are two points of comparison for that. There's a separate country with a floating exchange rate that can pursue adjustment by means of cheapening its currency. During the adjustment phase, think of the Asia crisis, it may need liquid, probably does need liquidity support from the IMF or wherever, which would be repaid by domestic taxpayers. Or it may need sovereign debt write-down, uh, and Kruger, that whole drama, maybe not just liquidity, but sovereign problem. And its banks may be sufficiently hedged or not, in the wish latter case there's a whole bank resolution issue required. That's a country with a floating exchange rate. Separately, separate, separate, I'll go on. Or there may be separate regions within an individual, individual country which can pursue adjustment through labour mobility between the regions, difficult, and through fiscal insurance, absolutely central, US, Australia, Canada. They may need uh, liquidity support from the central fiscal authority. South Australia had a banking crisis, that's what <coughs> happened to American stories. And they may need insurance and transfers. They're the points of comparison. A country in a monetary union can't do this. These have these mechanisms of adjustment. The competitiveness adjustment process um, will require very long time. Uh, we go back to how difficult it is to adjust wages. All this all these hopeful discussions about wage costs in the European South coming down. It's very very slow still. Furthermore. There's the debt overhang caused by all the borrowing being, being denominated in the, essentially the foreign currency, the Euro, like the Asia crisis. Though there'll be a need for liquidity financing, that's to say fiscal lending to support indebted governments, and because adjustment will take time, he to need to go on saying this. There'll almost certainly at present be requirement for sovereign debt write-downs, that's what we're seeing in Europe, and for bank restructuring. And if the shock is large, uh, uh, if the shock is large. And all these problems are much more difficult than in the separate country case can devalue or the region within a, in a country case you can get in your car and move to the other cities. Now, Ashoka says, rightly deals with how difficult it is proving to bring about the two necessary things in this in this monetary union fiscal uh, 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 these are fiscal union and banking union we're still on his thing that saying is very hard to imagine working a fiscal union for a region within a monetary system would make possible lending i liquidity financing 
automatic stabilizers could work, all those things. Uh, it would enable one-off transfers, insurance payments when, uh, when there's debt problems, and it would have longer-term rebalancing mechanisms so that the transfers are not permanent. Just notice in passing, that's rather a different list from what German people think a fiscal union involves. But that's what you need in a fiscal union, the ability to do macroeconomic management. That's what a fiscal union has to be. Uh, just as with IMF programs, there will be intrinsic problems in determining in each crisis case the extent to which um, the crisis can be allowed to be just a liquidity crisis, the crisis with the automatic stabilizers working and governments in difficult situations borrowing and going on borrowing and the adjustment takes a long time and going on borrowing. Um, and, and there will end up being a solvency crisis set of circumstances in many cases um, in which there's need for forgiveness for sovereign debt reconstruction, all of Ashoka's stuff will need to be, that's to say of debt forgiveness, needs to be part of that fiscal union process. So I'm already saying, what I'll say in the end, his, his proposals are necessary for anything that works. Necessary. We've, and I've taken this very much from the earlier paper of yours in which you persuaded me of this. And you'll hear me saying at the end, necessary but not sufficient. <laughs> Let me keep on going. He describes the, 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 the burdens which are being imposed on borrowers by refusing to recognise the need to restructure. And you do also describe the moral hazard which this is encouraging in lenders. Need to be these things extraordinarily difficult to bring them about. There'll also need to be a bank, be banking union to include not just common ex-ante surveillance but common ex-post resolution of difficulties in which the losses are pooled. That's the, that's the deal that's necessary for that first hopeful thing which you don't think can work. And you've described the difficulties of negotiating this since it, uh, since all of this is fundamentally built on fiscal sharing processes. Exactly, yeah. And the banking union rests on that too because in the end the, rec re the uh, resolution mechanism has pulled losses and that's got to be underpinned fiscal. fiscally. Yeah, cool. So, so difficult. Your s proposed solution is one of decentralisation. There would be no attempt to... Imp uh, now, I, I'm in danger of caricaturing. That's no, <laughs> no attempt to, uh, to impose a fiscal union and no attempt, attempt to impose a banking union. Instead, and I quote, because I've seen this more or less identical sentence in your earlier paper, and it's the core of everything here, where countries have given up the flexibility of exchange rates uh, and and lack the central funded fiscal capacity to absorb, absorb shocks, such countries require the buffer of sovereign debt re restructuring. Core argument. Again, uh, the, the, you'll see me saying necessary, we're asking is it sufficient, which is your claim. Yeah. 
Each sovereign would have the responsibility for its own banks. Notice, of course, that that would increase the vulnerability of each sovereign uh, because when, as I'll describe in a minute, things get bad, the banks get mad, which make them even worse for the sovereign. Taken me an awfully long time to get to comparing that with the previous ideas how they work in countries which have sensible systems and how they're meant to work in a monetary union with a fiscal union and a banking union. I'm sceptical that Ashoka's thing is sufficient. Consider the current difficulties. Collapse has prevented, now I'm describing why what we're doing at the minute requires more fiscal union than we can see in his paper. Just look at what's going on at the minute. Consider what's happened. The collapse has, prevent, has been prevented by OMT. Draghi saying, I'll do everything that it takes. And that has in turn been implicitly under, underpinned by some kind of fiscal union. And there's a lot of discussion about ex-ante, ex-post, real imaginary promise, will it be reneged on? But in the end, that huge balance sheet of the ECB has to end up somewhere. So there's some... So, uh, you don't want that. That's what we've got at the minute. I don't believe that we could have made where we are now work without this OMT. OMT rescue, we would have had, you would probably agree, without it we would have had a crisis. Um, I won't say any more on that. Um, sovereigns would become, without this, sovereigns would become highly risky and banks, depending on their own sovereigns, would become risky and we'd be in danger, and here I'm trying to now make the real point about the difficulty we'd be in danger of having a monetary union that wasn't really a monetary union. Just remind yourself of the slow speed of adjustment. Can't devalue, can't get in the car and drive somewhere else. This takes five or ten years, the wage adjustment. Such, such a system would be fragile and possibly unstable. So I've taken an awfully long time to get to this final point, uh, central argument. Just imagine Ashoka had set up the system and everyone knows that there's risks and so this isn't risk free, risk, the sovereign debt isn't risk free and the banks have got all this risk and we sell the stuff and we set off happily at the beginning. Now, now let there be a downturn in one region. Just ask yourself when, and, and, and before we, there are cocos, there's all that stuff in place. Um, but now let's uh, turn on the camera and let time run. Uh, let a country have a downturn. Can't devalue, and it's really difficult to adjust its costs. So the downturn will be prolonged. Uh, this is just the gold standard, but that's, that's just rhetoric. We, th this is prolonged, difficult adjustment. But that will make the sovereign revenues fall, and that will create fiscal risk. It will require cuts, worsening the slump and make the sovereign revenue fall even more. What does the sovereign need to do in these circumstances? Needs to borrow. Who from? What does the country need to do? 
needs to borrow. Who from? Let's suppose that now let's let's make this always best to consider a case that might work. Let's suppose that over time the fiscal adjustment really would be possible. All this country needs is liquidity financing during the adjustment period. Would you lend to this country? Would you lend to would you keep your deposits in the banks in this country? Or would you hold bank shares of the banks in this country? Now, I'm speaking in shorthand, I'm describing a multiple equilibrium. This could work, but if you and I look at each other and say, it's an awfully long time, and there's nobody standing behind this, this nation is on its own. We look up Washington and we figure out dialing the IMF, we can't do it inside Europe. Where is this? And, and we know from the Asia crisis that in these circumstances, even when there's not a risk of a solvency crisis, liquidity crises can occur because of multiple equilibria. That's the risk. That's, that's what I'm worried about. Um, so, I think what you've said is necessary but not sufficient. I think the task is even harder than in your paper. The willingness, uh, all the way back at the beginning, I said, what a mess, agreed with you, what a mess we're in and moral hazard and there ha should have been more debt write down earlier. It's clearly necessary. What I've been saying here is I'm not yet persuaded that it's sufficient. So we have to go back to the beginning and say if we don't want number three, bust up, and if we don't want number two, which is muddling through because in the end it won't work, we're driven reluctantly back to trying to invent some mixture of your ideas and fiscal union and banking union to make it work. And if, like, <laughs> I don't go to bed, sleep well, thinking about that, if, like, you looking at this, uh, I think what the likely outcome and it may be in your final sentence of your paper that we are just stumbling forward to a fatal fall and and I'm afraid I don't think your paper helps us and maybe not enough of us. <laughs> I, I said, thank you no, no, absolutely right ne necessary but not sufficient maybe not enough look no no I, 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 I take it in the right I'm so first of all I'm really happy to hear the comments and you know, as Calypso was saying, I do feel I'm amongst friends. So I, I, I and I, and uh, so all that spirit. Yeah. yeah so I, I'm, yeah. I'm totally comfortable with with your conclusion in the in the spirit in which it has been said. Let me make two, since Max suggested that I make a few comments before inviting comments. Oh, yeah. There, are, there are two distinctions we have to make over here. One is between legacy of what this crisis has delivered to us today and what what we should think of as a forward-looking architecture. So that distinction is an important one. And the second is between liquidity and solvency. There is there is a clear there is a clear instrument or institution for managing liquidity in the system and that is the ECB. The, the problem 
in in the euro area has been that liquidity and solvency have been conflated so you take the omt for example which is as a, 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 a central pillar right now in in a paper that i'm just i've just completed i'm claiming that the omt really was a follow up to an earlier policy of what is in inelegantly called OSI or official sector involvement which is forgiveness of official sector debt is creating a, a a presumption that there will be a floor below which private losses will not be allowed to fall that's essentially that presumption and it is that presumption is being granted on a basis that if we were to extend omt we would have conditions hmm. now that is not a central bank that is an a, a conditional lender like the imf hmm. a central bank does not ask does not does not negotiate conditions uh, a central bank provides liquidity to deal with panics and the basic thesis of the paper is that you need to separate the liquidity role and the solvency role and that by not separating them you amplify the solvency problems into a contagion like phenomenon whereas the contagion arises essentially from liquidity considerations now separating solvency and liquidity is not always straightforward we know that as practitioners uh, on on the operational side but that is ultimately what the practitioner has to do not therefore to to occupy the territory of solvency sure. as a as a preemptive measure uh but to to make that decision on 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 a practical and considered basis and so if that were to occur then as calypso pointed out you do go back to a monetary union which is the pre depression American monetary union where there were no fiscal transfers where there was a clear presumption of no bailout and there was a central bank which in in a way was much more dysfunctional than the ECB today is and so at least in one sense you you create a mo- you create a monetary union which is superior to the monetary union that existed in the united states before the depression if there are outside outsized shocks it is still david's claim that this structure a pre depression us monetary union is insufficient is presumably a plausible thesis one that 
certainly no one should should disregard but and here is my sort of further claim that if this structure were put in place the propensity to accumulate debt would become much less and that the entire the extraordinary leverage that exists today would be scaled down so that the the incentives to accumulate the levels of debt that we just saw and therefore create a a condition in which the panic has has real repercussions that would be dampened it's sort of like you don't want to you you you, you if you don't if so the, so so put it put it sort of a little bit more colorfully the buddha said that when you walk into a flowing river you should walk only to the point from which you can walk back hmm. uh you don't want to get into the flow of the river till you are prepared to to walk into the deep flow and i think what the europeans did was that they walked into the into the hard flow of the river without an ability to walk back and and what the system i'm proposing is insufficient in the david wine sense that it will not allow you to flow into the into the rapid current of the river but it allows you to have an ability to test the river in a more robust way and create a structure of incentives which does not require you to get into the rapid which which promotes a self-correcting mechanism that does not take it, you into the rapid currents by preventing the excessive accumulation of leverage that's the thesis and i think uh, david do you want to very quick come back I can see how that could be so. Uh I'm not convinced that it's adequate. Uh yeah. And, and and I come back to the fear that for ordinary macroeconomic reasons in the fixed exchange rate regime downturns will be very severe testing the credibility of a sovereign even of a very well-behaved kind who hasn't gone on a spree before. Fair enough. and so we're in in the end possibly talking about in numbers about there can be winds that push you in the flow that are not a consequence of structures of incentives fair they're enough. just that's happening that's and that's reasonable state yeah yeah so that's part of the big that, issue yeah. so i will open it up